from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Robert Sylvester an educator who spent 24 years in Africa living in Zambia and Botswana. Before playing Bob's interview, I would like to play a news piece by Chicago Public Radio. In May 2008, the Baha'is of the United States held their 100th annual national convention at the House of Worship in Wilmette, Illinois, when they elected their national governing council called the National Spiritual Assembly. Chicago Public Radio covered the convention. Here is the resultant piece by Jennifer Brandell of Chicago Public Radio. Though the season of primaries is just about behind us, November is nearly half a year away, and we could still be in for a lot more partisan politics and mudslinging. If it seems like there ought to be a more civil way to run democratic elections, members of the Baha'i faith say that's because there is. And once a year, they refine a new democratic process in that big white temple in north suburban Wilmette. The 100th Baha'i National Convention was recently held there. 848 contributor Jennifer Brandell watched the process. Imagine at your polling place, you were given a blank ballot and the choice to vote for anyone you wanted to. Imagine a couple hundred men and women from every walk of life, of all ages, all colors, surrounding you, silent and reverent. Imagine no campaigns, no electioneering, no competition, no corruption, no money. John Abdo. This is an election. Bryce Abel. Baha'i style. James Abercrombie. And when the last vote is cast, delegates raise their voices in unison. This kind of election just gives you faith and hope and optimism about the future. That's United States federal judge Dorothy Nelson. She's been a delegate for 51 years, and she's in it for the long haul. It may take a thousand years, but I think ultimately, I believe this is what is going to change the world. How? Baha'i delegate and professor of English literature, Dr. John Hatcher, says the answer to that is built into the foundation of the faith itself. The first thing I say is the Baha'i faith is, is a world religion, not a sect, not a philosophy, uh, not a part of another religion, but it is a worldwide religion that believes in the idea that all the world religions throughout history on this planet is really one religion revealed in sequential stages. In other words, Baha'i see religion as ever-unfolding chapters in a single book. And the founder of the faith, Baha'u'llah, is the most recent manifestation of God, or the author of the latest chapter. We see that 
every major religion in the world in its golden days has been the catalyst, the impetus for growth of the civilization of that era. Delegate Muin Afnani says from Abraham to Zoroaster, these prophets ushered in the paradigm for their respective ages. And in this age of information, communication, and the global economy, the paradigm to come is about uniting the human race. Baha'u'llah asked humanity to test the hypothesis that we could live together on this planet in peace. And the Baha'is are people who said, yeah, let's test that hypothesis. Let's see if this works. Baha'i delegate and professor Dr. Michael Carlberg. And, you know, it sounds like a sort of trite expression almost. But in fact, the idea of the oneness of humanity profoundly challenges most of the deepest held assumptions in especially Western society. Because Western society our systems of governance and many of our institutional sort of structures are in fact based on models of conflict, not harmony or unity. Carl Berg wrote a book called The Culture of Contest. He says more than any other culture, we glorify competition and tend to treat personal interactions like a tug of war. People can only either win or lose, and winning is based on power. The Baha'is define power not as money, influence, or strength, but rather as capacity. And when a group can exercise its capacity together, they believe lasting and positive change is inevitable. Now, some people would say, well, that's utopian. But in fact, Baha'is would say that clinging to this old model of human nature is in fact very naive because it will destroy us. I mean, that's to put it very bluntly, but it's failing us. So it's not at all utopian to believe that human nature has another side that can be cultivated. In fact, it's the, the practical response to the challenges that face us. Dr. Carlberg says America's brand of democracy was a remarkable accomplishment two centuries ago, but times have changed. enter the Baha'i electoral process and administration. The governance Baha'is have developed from the blueprint of Baha'u'llah and his successors is a means to organize humanity in a way that achieves unity and justice. There's no clergy in the faith, so the nine members of the National Assembly govern the affairs of 160,000 U.S. Baha'is. The elections work the same at three levels, the local assemblies, the National Assembly, and the Universal House of Justice. That's the faith's world headquarters in Israel. Baha'is convene in a prayerful atmosphere and write down the names of nine people they think best manifest the qualities and virtues for an elected official. Plurality wins. One question that's always asked is, how do you avoid power-seeking in such a system? And the answer is that in order to be elected, you would have to feign sincerity and humility, <laughs> which is hard to do uh, unless you keep your mouth shut. Dr. Hatcher says the power-hungry just wouldn't find any satisfaction in the process because no individual's ideas get recorded. Credit is given to the group. That's no accident. The system is designed to minimize the expression of negative personal traits and to maximize the positive aspects of community. And Delegate Dr. Hatcher says this design is and has been working for the 5 million Baha'is worldwide. We are currently building what we believe is the model of the future. 
Baha'is contend that countries around the world are still a long way off from being ready to use this governing structure. But that's good because they're not quite ready for that to happen either. If a Baha'i faith is one day going to grow into a mighty oak tree. Professor Dr. Michael Carlberg. I'd say that, you know, we're a sapling that's just a couple of feet off the ground right now. But in that sapling is the potential of the tree, and, and we're trying to tend and cultivate that tree. We have a long way to go. For the time being, Baha'is are content to continue living by the principles of their faith and to welcome others to join them in that exploration. A world in need. For Chicago Public Radio, I'm Jennifer Brandel. Of one faith From one soul Welcome back to A Baha'i Perspective. Now I will play my interview with Robert Sylvester, an educator who spent 24 years in Africa living in Zambia and Botswana. I started the interview by asking Bob where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Born, I grew up on the North Shore of Boston. I was born, my parents were living in Malden, Massachusetts. When I was a very young child, they moved to Winchester. We had a large family, a very large family with generations living together an extended family of a grandparent and an aunt and an uncle, seven children. We had 13 people at the table for supper, which was always interesting. I went to school in a Catholic school, actually for 12 years, in Winchester and then subsequently in Cambridge. What was family life like? It was interesting. It was a, it, it was a matriarchy. My, uh, it was an interesting mix of, of a matriarchy and a patriarchy because my uncle was a Catholic priest. And he was sort of the titular head of the family. And I didn't realize this until I was, the implications of this until I was an adult. And my mother really had the strong hand in terms of the, the domestic side of it. And my, my father was pretty soft-spoken. Living in an extended family experience, uh, I appreciated much more when I worked overseas for many years in Africa, and where the extended family was the normal living arrangement. Living with an extended family is really, I think, a very valuable, very important training for life. And it's really a shame that less and less of the population in the West today are experiencing multiple generations in a family. And, you know, with the, with the aunt and the uncle and uh, the grandparent living there, the dynamics of the family were quite apparent. And with seven children ranging, I think, over a 12-year span, there was plenty of room for sibling rivalry and being lost in the crowd at the same time. Where were you in the mix? I was in the middle, the precious middle. <laughs> the caught between two families was, was really what it was like. We were an observant Catholic family, of course, with my uncle being a Catholic priest. The religious observances, certainly through my elementary and, and, and secondary years, were a central point of family life. As far as this observant Catholic life, were you quite involved in it? Was it something that really rang for you and was... 
Yeah, probably of all my siblings, I had uh, at one time contemplated the priesthood, not only a weekly observant, but was an altar boy and uh, was close to many priests through my uncle's associations and took part in the sports life of the, the Catholic youth organization organized until I went to college, probably never considered a life outside of that culture and that experience. But I, I had, uh, as I think back on it, I gathered what the guardian of the Baha'i faith calls a profound reverence for the prophets, both old and new. And I think that reverence is an important part of that culture. We were both observant, and it was, it was at the center of our life growing up. And what were your interests growing up? My interests were in sports, mm-hmm. although I was really only good in swimming. My interest was also in nature and in hiking. Uh, I eventually had an interest in photography, and probably in my, in my secondary, in my high school years, in poetry. Of those interests, all were sustained, but especially poetry and travel. I, I had an unsuccessful bit at other sports, but certainly that experience as, young, as a young man, that mix of experiences was, was very helpful in rounding out a social ability, mm-hmm. which I think also goes back to the, the experience with a large family in a, in a multi-generational home just allows you to rely upon social skills you didn't realize you were building. I grew up in the middle of five kids, there's a certain level of negotiating that you do being in the middle that puts you in the middle way or something. I don't know if, no, I, it's true. if there's been studies. Either negotiating or, with a sibling or negotiating with a parent or negotiating with a parent <laughs> about a sibling. Yeah, <laughs> right. You went to Catholic high school? Yes, in mm-hmm. Cambridge, Massachusetts. And so I had the experience of being educated by Sisters of St. Joseph for 12 years, which is rigorous. I had some wonderful teachers, but as was my college experience, I also had some teachers who probably should have chosen another profession. (laughs) Of course, now for my sins, I'm now training teachers, so I say that with a a bit of professional distance, but not too much professional distance. (laughs) Uh, And and where did you go to college? I went to to one of the state colleges on the North Shore of Boston, Salem State. As an undergraduate, I was preparing for both teaching at the elementary level and teaching secondary, my, my undergraduate major was, was English. And I had, by that time, a number of years of experience teaching swimming. That probably led me to my lifelong interest in, in teaching and eventually adult education. I was there for four years, and that's actually where, I think in my second year, my sophomore year, now this was in the 1970s, I have two profound memories. One of the profound memories I have, which it will be familiar to anyone who was alive at that time, was the student uprisings of the early 1970s against the Vietnam War. And I was actually at that time in the process of applying for, for conscientious objective status. I had a very low draft number. But I think even, even if I had a high number, I, I probably was going to apply for non-combatant status. And my application was actually about to go in. In fact, it had started. I had applied and received a a status card already when the draft was ended. But one of my profound memories was, I think it was the spring of 74 or 75, when everyone got 
a passing grade for all their courses because we probably only spent about 10 weeks in classes that spring. And the rest of the time, people were spent either taking over buildings or in protest. And that was also at about the same time that the height of my interest in the Baha'i faith was raised. It's kind of interesting that at a, at a time of profound social upheaval, a young college undergraduate would take such an interest in spiritual matters. But I think it, it might, may be that my sensibilities ran wide at that point, in part because of the, the social unrest that we were experiencing at the time. And the woman who would eventually be my wife was the one who introduced me to the Baha'i faith. Having been raised a Catholic, it was a, a profound moment of curiosity, probably, that led me to investigate it, both in part on my own and then through her and through her family, and eventually on my own through the exhaustive the sacred writings, which spoke to me in a way that I can only describe as a voice I had heard before. I have a, a sibling, my oldest brother, second-born, and I share a voice. But we not only share the same voice, we share all of the same patterns. So if I'm actually in another room and his children are in the next room, they will think it's their father. Hmm. It's that close the voices are, without feigning or pretending. And to me, it was that experience of when I read the Baha'i writings, within a moment, within the first words, to me, it was the same voice that I heard in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And to me, that was intriguing to hear that same voice. But I couldn't explain why I heard that voice. And I think that was the object of my quest for over three years, to learn as much as I could about the faith. My wife had been raised in a Baha'i family. Her father was born in the Lebanon, and uh, actually of a Christian family, and came to the United States with his grandfather in the 1930s, and I think became a Baha'i in New York City in the 1940s, so she was raised in a Baha'i family. It was interesting to me to see uh, an observant family, a religiously observant family, similar to mine, but observant in a spiritual practice that I had never heard of before. I thought my upbringing and with my experience, I thought I knew at least a liberal amount of information about the world religions, but really I didn't. My knowledge of, of Islam was probably nil. And so one of my early questions was the relationship between the Baha'i teachings and the teachings of Islam. And it was interesting to me that that came relatively easy to me, so easy that within probably six months to a year of investigating Islam, I was presenting Islam to my colleagues, my fellow students, uh, I remember we had a history and philosophy of religion course. One of our assignments was to choose a great teacher, so I chose Muhammad, and we ended up, now this is the 1970s, speaking at the mosque in Quincy to a group of really, probably, in terms of knowledge of world religions, agnostic group of students who had no knowledge. Uh, I think back on that now with the, the events of the last several years, and that was probably a, a fairly unusual event for, for the 1970s. So when you first heard about the Baha'i faith, what was your initial reaction being a, raised a Catholic? Would, was there any defensiveness coming in? Oh, yeah. They... Um, I can remember very vividly going up to Baha'i Conference Center in Maine with 
my friend at that time, who was my wife today, Donis, my aim was when going there was to explain Christianity to her, to, to convince her of the error of her ways. But I, I had an equal impulse, an equivalent impulse, to understand what was in front of me at that time. And the more I tried to explain the heart of Christianity and the promise of the Christian revelation, the closer and closer I came to the Baha'i writing, not only in terms of voice, but also in terms of substance. And it began to become apparent to me that there were two types of knowledge within religious organizations. One was traditional or social knowledge, which changed over time. One needs only go back to the Middle Ages to see spiritual practice in the Middle Ages, whether it be Catholic or Muslim or Jewish. If you compare spiritual practice in the Middle Ages to today, it would be unrecognizable. Now, there might be remnants of it, as there were when I was a young boy in the 1950s, and there were iron gates uh, that separated the congregation from the priest in one of the cathedrals in Boston. It was in the early 60s with Vatican II that those gates, which were themselves a remnant of the medieval social belief that the priest is separate from the community, which you know was one of the byproducts of Vatican II. And so for me, while I was not setting out to convert anyone, it had a dual edge to it. It had a dual edge to explain Christianity, in particular Catholicism, and, and, but at the same time understand a burning desire to understand what was in front of me. And of course what was in front of me was an ocean. It shocked me. The more I would read, the more I would realize there was more to read. I think the other thing that was parallel to this was, in my search of, of Islam certainly assisted, we tend to have two very distinct weaknesses in our education system. One is a, a learning about Africa. We, I don't think we teach it at all. I think we end up finishing high school and have almost no knowledge of the dark continent. And we have very little knowledge of the deep history of Asia and especially the Middle East. We have a surface knowledge of it through whatever lens we use as our religious practice. But I really think that there was a parallel kind of investigation on my part, on starting with Islam, uh, of what happened after Christ. You know, what was the march of religious and, and spiritual progress since the Christian revelation? And that really has, you know, I look at my bookshelf and I see books. I, I think I learned more about the early Christianity in my search of the Baha'i writings than I would have ever known. Because I wanted to understand the root. Now, you said you investigated the Baha'i faith for about three years? Yes. Now, what was it after three years that caused you to actually commit to being a Baha'i? Well, it, it's interesting because my, wife, uh, my, my soon-to-be wife, Donis, and I decided to be married. And originally we had agreed that we would have two separate ceremonies, one in the Catholic Church and one within the Baha'i laws, which was very simple. And so we began that investigation through one of the local parishes. At that time, you were required to sign a statement that your children would be raised in the Catholic Church. 
And after about three years, and in consultation with my fiance, I had come to a decision. I had moved already far enough to believe that children should should have their own minds and should make their decisions about their religious and spiritual lives. And so I became troubled by that. And that troubling, that decision not to follow that led me to another decision, and that was at the beginning, I think it was the first or second of March of the year that I publicly declared my faith in Baha'u'llah. We had already received consent, which was necessary for marriage. In, in the Baha'i, Baha'i faith, law. yeah. And my parents loved my, my fiance. I mean, I, I always say they really loved her more than me, probably, <laughs> and preferred her. She was such a good choice. My mother was, was gravely ill at the time um, with cancer and had suffered for several years. And I said to my fiance, if I, if I do declare uh, my belief in Baha'u'llah, we will lose consent. And she says, no, that's impossible. I said, no, that is exactly what will happen. And sure enough, when I did declare, we lost consent. The irony, one of the ironies of the situation was that we had already set a wedding day. And the day upon which we were to be married originally, we buried my mother. Oh, my gosh. It was a very poignant kind of experience. But even more profoundly poignant was the fact that I was able to spend time with my mother before she died. In fact, I spent the day before she died, or the day she died, with her myself. She was so gravely ill that there were seven days in the week, and there were seven children, so each of us took a day in the week to care for her. And I had the very first day of the first week. And she was in terrible pain. Uh, I remember she fell out of bed, and I had to lift her up. And she had bone cancer, so everything was pain. And after helping her out, to go to the bathroom and bring her back, literally carrying her. She said, I just want to die. She was in such profound pain. And so I decided at that moment, she was in a tremendous pain, I decided at that moment to read uh, a Baha'i prayer that was of particular significance called the Tablet of Ahmad. And it's revealed by Baha'u'llah specifically for people in times of And I read that at her feet. I got a call the next morning from my sister-in-law, who was an emergency room nurse. And she said my mother had died in her sleep, and the death was so peaceful that she, as an emergency room nurse, could not believe it. But I was not surprised. Baha'u'llah says that I have made death a messenger of joy. And I think at that moment I had a, a, a glimpse So it's kind of fortuitous that by not getting consent, you were able to spend time with your grandmother and then not have to have this conflict of a wedding on the same day that your grandmother passed away. Yes, and not only that, there was at the other end of it, about a year later, we eventually did get consent from my father after many, many months you know, waiting. And, and when we finally did get consent, he revealed something to me that was really remarkable. He, he reminded me that when I asked him, I said, do you have any objection to my choice of bride? He said, no, oh my God, would prefer her to you. <laughs> then he told me a story about his own upbringing, and he told me the story of him being abandoned by his own father 
because of a religious dispute between his mother and father. And he was only a boy of five at the time. Now, this was a story that no one in my family knew, but he was revealing to me and giving consent to my marriage at the same time by saying the spiritual unity of the family is the most important thing in a marriage. Those were his words. I was dumbfounded. Not only because it was a, a, a story that I didn't know, and I later shared with my family many years later after he died, but that he would quietly understand the spiritual dynamics that were involved in this test, even though he had lost his wife, even though he really risked his own standing in the family by giving me consent because my, my uncle being a Catholic priest and being the titular head of the family put my father in a difficult position. But for him, his boyhood experience in, in the, the spiritual dissonance of parents' breaking up because of religion. For him, the lesson was profound enough to overcome all obstacles. You got married while you were in school? We had finished school, and my wife was teaching. We were both doing graduate work. I was doing full-time graduate work at the time that we were married. We had actually decided when we got married that we wanted to uh, spend a few years overseas because we were both teachers and that, at that time in the 1970s. It was a great, a very great demand for teachers overseas in newly formed international schools, and that's basically how we we made our career at that time. Where did you end up going? We got jobs in uh, Zambia, teaching at uh, a large international school there, and we stayed there for 14 years, working at first at an international school, and later I worked with the UN, uh, with UNESCO, as a teacher trainer and curriculum developer. Uh, then we went on to Botswana. I was head of a school in Botswana for 10 years. So our life became, you know, one that was totally unexpected. We were, we, when we were first married, we decided to go overseas for a couple of years for the experience. And if at all possible, to volunteer and serve the Baha'i communities, the fledgling Baha'i communities in Africa at that time. Since we don't have full-time paid missionaries in the Baha'i faith, we do have service to Baha'i communities around the world, and there is always a need for a volunteer. That was a very important thing. To me, it was a natural thing to do, to express my own interest in the unity of mankind by discovering the roots of mankind in Africa. If you've ever seen that movie, Close Encounters of a Third Kind, where Richard Dreyfus builds a model of a mountain that he sees in a dream, my Close Encounter of the Third Kind was when I discovered that science now has painted a pretty clear picture that the origins of the human race were African, and that the journey out of Africa took place within the last 50,000 years, and that underneath our skin we are truly, as Baha'u'llah says, leaves of one tree. In a genetic sense, that's almost an exact model. And to me, that's the most important thing that any teacher could teach children today, that we are leaves of one tree. It's actually being a scientific fact, kind of a, a marvelous story to be told, but it's almost a story, having lived in Africa, and specifically in the savannas of Africa, in Central Africa, for so long, to me, that is not only the central story of Baha'u'llah's revelation, this, this, this consciousness, as Abdu'l-Baha says, 
consciousness of the oneness of humankind being the pivot point of all human knowledge. And to me, that's a very profound operating principle, that all human knowledge, while flowing from God, pivots on the central point of the consciousness of the oneness of humankind. And there's so much interest in the question of diversity and the aspects of diversity and the characteristics of diversity that we almost lose sight of the fact that unity is really the foundation upon which our human diversity rests, whether it be whether it be biological or cultural or linguistic. Now what do you mean, Bob? Can you give an example? In terms of anthropology, if you just take cultural expression, let's just say that drumming in one country is different from drumming in another country. Or if you look at the style of dances between one country and another country, or one population of human beings. But the underlying thing that those cultural expressions stand on is that culture itself is a human expression. It is an identifier that you are human if you build culture. And therefore, we tend to see cultural expression as a defining point of the other, rather than a defining point of the one, the one being the human element. It's really interesting that the the international corporate sensibilities are now exploiting this. At least three uh, large multinational corporations that have television ads today, which uh, either describe humanity as a single entity or evoke a a humanity which is singular. And maybe they've discovered something that is powerful. I think because we have a history, uh, a human history, which has been largely defined through warfare, and therefore written by the victorious ones, we have had trouble remembering the fact that during that entire journey out of Africa, not only have we developed culture, but we've intermarried at the same time. We are not separate populations. We are a single genetic population, uh, a single species. And the populations, while having different circumstances and different experiences because of geography or, or politics or history, share an absolute common genetic dream. And we share in that. That is our future. Our future is uh, the children who we bear, wherever they might be from. And so I think we, t- we tend, in, at least in the West, we tend to define history in two ways. We tend to define history as those who are victorious, and then the other way we define history is through a description of the other. Now that the planet has reached what Shoghi Effendi calls a point of maturity, the other is us. We are the other. That causes some reassessment, I think, at a very specific level in terms of how we understand our place in the uh, the global sphere, but also our place with regard to people we used to consider the other. So tell me about the school in Zambia and the country and the Baha'i community from your experience. The school was a, a, growing, a quickly growing school. In the 1970s, uh, embassies around the world were developed very quickly, relatively quickly, as independent, as countries became independent. And so there was a demand for, you know, housing and schools and, and medical care. 
had children from about 70 different countries speaking 90 different languages. And the turnover, as was the case with most international schools, was was very significant, so much so that within three to five years you would turn your population over completely because students tended to only stay, the majority of students would only stay for a period of, of three to four years. You had a local contingent among that group, so it was a, a quite a mixed group, and you, we had teachers from 24 different countries, and so there was a challenge of learning their cultural orientation in terms of teaching and learning. And the Baha'i community was also a, you know, a, a relatively new Baha'i community, a fledgling Baha'i community in a very poor context with transport and economics being very, very difficult, but one in which in succeeding decades became one of the fastest-growing Baha'i communities, in fact, one of the most remote regions of Zambia in the last several years has become one of the most progressive in terms of its own development of its own community organization undertaking we have in the Baha'i community around the world to create clusters of activity in which Baha'i communities look after their affairs and and engage very actively with the world around them. One of the most remote regions of Zambia was one of those first clusters to be formed, what we call in, in the community now a cluster. I wasn't surprised when I heard that because Zambians are, are long-suffering, have a culture of long-suffering, but a very patient people, and are very receptive to spiritual reality. The history of colonialism and the history of what was a, a, a sort of a guerrilla warfare between missionary groups who would carve out different territories of these countries was such that they did great damage to the deep cultural roots of African peoples. And one of the things that many Christian missionary groups did was tell and insist to their new congregants that the great-grandparents and the great-great-grandparents of these people, these African peoples, could not be saved because they did not know Christ, and they were lost. Now, for a, a deep tradition which reveres its heritage and reveres and considers part of their sacred past, those who came before them, this was, this was very difficult. And so I think one of the wonderful, I think, realities, that, and in part this, this attracted me to the Baha'i faith, was that we do not look upon religion as distinct or separate. We look upon religion as a, a singular historical process that manifests itself from time to time, but which, like a river, is continuous and unbroken, and that the human response to it and the human understanding of it is what breaks it up and limits it and distorts it and finally prostitutes it. And, and Africans come to that understanding quickly. They understand that. They understand the singular reality of a creator and the unending guidance from that same creator. To them, that it's not something you need to convince them. Which, as you know, unfortunately in the West, we've come to a point where you have to convince someone of the Creator first, because science has abrogated for itself a theology of non-belief. Tell me about Botswana and the school you worked there and the country and the Baha'i community. Botswana was very different, a pastoral land on the edge of the Kalahari Desert, 
very small community. It was a brand new school owned by the world's largest diamond company and the American Embassy and the British High Commission. We had a, a significant Muslim population in Botswana where we had almost no Muslims in Zambia, very, very few. They were, among others, attracted to the school being a new school, and we were charged with both designing and building the school, which we did on a 12-acre site over the course of three or four years. The history of, of Botswana being on the front lines of the political revolution in South Africa made the social realities very distinct from Zambia, but, but not so different that they didn't have similar roots. Zambia was, it is, truly an egalitarian but very poor society. And different social groups mixed with all social groups. There is not a, a great distinction. In Botswana, it was very much the same. In fact, it was a very high rate of interracial marriage in Botswana, in part because that was the only place that people could go from South Africa to, uh, if they were from different racial populations to marry. And so even the, the first president of Botswana, Sir Sereti Kama, was himself married to a British woman. And that was it, itself a cultural event in Botswana because that was not an easy thing for his tribe to accept, which they, they eventually they did. The Baha'i community in Botswana was probably much more economically secure, but much smaller. A very small population base. Anyways, Zambia had a very large population base in relative terms and, and great diversity in the country. They had 72 languages and dialects and seven official languages. Botswana had a single language policy, Setswana being the dominant group and English being the language of intercommunication. And they were very conservative. They were pastoral people, and the signal of their culture was that I think at the time I was there, their government treasury had two sources of income. One was the sale of diamonds, and the other was the interest from the money they got in the sale of diamonds. And so these were, this was a very conservative culture, and it was largely uh, driven by uh, living on the edge of a desert. Baha'i community there was very active, but I think, as with, it is the case with many Baha'i communities, we live within a world, a political world. We live within a cultural world. The Baha'i community tends to express itself in terms of that world, even though we are struggling to carry on what is, as is described in the Baha'i writings, a heritage that goes back to the ancient of day. That when we speak of religion, we do not speak of religion in singular terms. We speak of religion in collective terms. And if we speak of the religion of Abraham, we speak in the same terms as the religion of the Buddha or the Krishna. And to me, I think eventually it was that single, unbroken understanding of religion as a process that probably drove me to be a Baha'i. Because for me, there was no other way of understanding the universe. If the universe wasn't constructed that way, then it was crazy. <laughs> Only that made sense. You came back to the United States after being in Botswana? Yeah, in 2000, we came back to the United States. I was finishing my Ph.D., and my two children had never lived in the United States. My son was going to start his university, and my daughter needed some specialized high school education. 
So what was it like for you coming back to the United States after being away for, what, 14 years? 24, after 24 years, sociologists have a term for it. They call hidden immigration. And the reason they call it hidden immigration is because you, you are immigrating. All of the experiences you have are those of an immigrant. Yet you don't look like an immigrant. You don't sound like an immigrant. You don't even act like an immigrant. But you are. It was and continues to be painful in the sense that the culture shock that we experienced going to Africa was a small factor of the culture shock we experienced returning to the United States after that experience because the way we thought and our emotional sensibilities and our spiritual understandings of life around the world as opposed to life in the West had profoundly altered our view of the world. If someone has not lived in Africa or directly experienced that kind of life-altering phenomena, it's very hard to explain. So we have the rule of what we call three questions. Most people could ask you three questions and then they stop because they're afraid to ask any more, especially my relatives. But eventually (laughs) you begin to understand the culture you grew up in. And I think that is in some ways the lesson for me, that I began to understand the nature of American culture when I left it and returned after 24 years. And And I began to understand that not only is the independent street a central part of the American culture, but this idea of self-reliance is a profoundly powerful virtue that we carry with us. But it has a cost, and it has a social cost. But it's a a wonderful thing in terms of human progress, because to be self-reliant means that you can stand on your own and not depend on others. That may well be a, a very valuable lesson for many human populations, but I think we lose some things in that process, especially when you marry that to a materialistic culture where you are considered only a consumer and, and there's no acknowledgement of your spiritual reality, which in Africa the acknowledgement of your spiritual reality is unstated. It, it is accepted. You do not argue about whether or not you are a spiritual being. That is as strong Your existence as a spiritual being in Africa is as strongly understood as our understanding of being self-reliant in American cultural terms. We don't talk about being self-reliant because it's so powerful uh, an artifact. Well, the same is true for spiritual realities in Africa. To see that, to experience that, I think is... This is probably the first time I've been able to articulate that in the eight years I've been back. So what have you been doing since you came back? finished my Ph.D., and I now work at one of the state colleges, training teachers at the undergraduate and graduate level. Any plans to go back to Africa or to somewhere else in the world? Given an opportunity, we would. My wife and I recently consulted about this, and it's almost as if our experience in Africa has, in both practical terms and spiritual terms, prepared us for what we have in front of us right now. It's almost, uh, I can now live in an American culture because I have the training of living in an African culture. And what did it train you for? Patience. Looking at the end of things. Realizing that progress can't be measured in acquisition, but the development of human capacity. And to me, this is a profoundly important thing in, in my own profession and understand the nature of teaching and learning, that it's 
not an acquisitive undertaking, that the development of human capacity is one in which, as Baha'u'llah says, gems which are latent within each of us are uncovered and exposed and utilized. That's a very different model from one which we, that I inherited at least. You always had to get an education. You always had to receive it. You always had to acquire it rather than struggle to discover what you inherently have. And I think for me, the call of Baha'u'llah always was in studying his writings, even from the very first moment that I opened the book, was a call to discover two things simultaneously. Discover the inherent spiritual nature of my own being and discover the call of God at the same time. I think those are intertwined. Baha'u'llah says that God is closer to us than our life vein, and of course that's the carotid artery, the one that runs between the head and the heart. It must be very rewarding bringing out the potential of young people in, in what you're doing. It is. Increasingly I'm seeing that young people are not equipped for the challenge that they have in front of them, at least in the public sector because of the disintegration of the family ties and because of the this obsession with materialistic endeavors. To talk about spiritual realities can be, for many people, a very challenging undertaking because they think it's controversial. Well, I, I don't think it's controversial at all to speak about human beings as emotional beings. I don't think it's controversial at all to speak of people as psychological beings. I don't think it's controversial at all to speak of people as biological beings. So if those aren't controversial, I don't see why speaking of someone as a spiritual being is controversial. And if, if one doesn't have at least an appreciation for children as spiritual beings, then I think we miss the object of the undertaking. So you're finding that teaching at this level is what you need to be doing right now? Yeah, I think so. We also have a very, in the Baha'i community, we also have an adult education program in which Baha'is are encouraged to contribute their time to, not only because we have an absence of a clergy, but because we are engaged in the world. This adult education program incorporates community development with the arts and with a, a serious approach to the discipline of studying sacred scripture without the benefit or anchor of someone interpreting it for you, which is new in religious terms. Our human experience in religion has been always interpreted through intermediaries. In my Baha'i experience, as I just described, the call for me in studying the Baha'i writing has always been twofold. The call to understand the will of God today, and also the, the call to understand myself as a spiritual being. And that cannot be mediated by another human being. We have, I think, rightfully reached the point, and ironically, my uncle was a priest and was an intermediary, and I can see where the human spirit has now matured to be able to approach that court, that courtyard. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Robert Sylvester, an educator who spent 24 years in Africa living in Zambia and Botswana. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com.
For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.